our New Testament, Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter today. We'll be looking at the end. This will be our last sermon on it. We started looking at verses 10 through 20 last week, and we looked at Christian contentment. And now we'll be looking at the rest of the content. So Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, and treat Yodia and I entreat Cynthia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply the needs of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. He's giving his final greetings and his final thoughts to them. And he's talked about already rejoicing, not being anxious, thinking about the things that are good, the things that are, are right. And then he follows that up with his final section, talking about some of these good things. 
about their blessing to him, their sharing in his trouble, verse 14. He's quite in, in quite a pickle at the moment, right? He's a prisoner in Rome, and Roman prisoners, prisoners in general in that day, in fact, prisoners outside of the Western world generally aren't treated very well. I remember learning in Cambodia that when a Westerner was arrested, somebody from the embassy would bring money and food to them on a regular basis so they had food to eat because otherwise they would get basically nothing but a small dish of rice a day. And being allowed then to have somebody come, your family when you were in prison, was obligated to come and bring you food every week or you wouldn't be eating. They give you what money they could so you could buy food. And over there, that seems to have been the case. In Acts chapter 24, we read when Paul was in Caesarea that orders were given to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Paul's friends, his associates, the believers, could come to him in prison and make sure that he was fed and clothed, had a blanket, had water, had what he needed on a regular basis to care for them. And when he was being sent to Rome, in Acts 27, verse 3, we read that when they put in at Sidon, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So he was able to go and stay with the believers in the city and have his needs cared for and be fed and given a place to sleep, rather than being left probably chained on the boat or in the, the local prison. And when he got to Rome, he was allowed, Acts 28:16, to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. And so all of this was going to be at his expense or at the people's expense. And really his ministry was at stake here. If he's locked in a prison with nobody able to come to see him, you know, like he was at one point chained to the wall or to the floor, you know, he's not going to be able to teach. He's not going to be able to preach. He's not going to be able to answer questions and encourage people. He's not going to be able to train up the new pastors who are going to replace him. It was a difficult, troublesome situation for him. Uh, Acts 28 finishes in verse 30 and 31 that he lived in Rome for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, complaining the kingdom of, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, he was allowed to take care of himself, but he needed money. He had his own rented home. He had to provide food for people to be able to come and learn from him. He needed to be able to take care of that. And their gifts were what allowed that to happen. Their kindness to him, their willingness to share in his ministry, in his suffering, in his prison imprisonment. You know, really think about this for a moment because it is so important. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, 17 about the gospel and about preaching. And he says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. Now, having been called to the ministry, he has an obligation to somehow fulfill it. And it really weighed on his heart 
you know, when he wasn't able to do that. It was very troublesome. He had been given a talent and was obligated to make use of it. We read that story. You remember the parable of the talent in Matthew 25. Uh, you might want to turn there if you'd like to follow along. Matthew 25, I'm going to read that, that whole parable. Because I want you to think about that in light of Paul. And he's a man who has been given great talents. He's been entrusted with an entire ministry to the Gentiles. Been entrusted with writing a good portion of the New Testament. Talking about the kingdom of heaven, he says, It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Starting at verse 14 of Matthew 25. Twenty gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. And also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered unto me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should at least receive what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For, everyone, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for one who does not have, what he has will be taken away, and he will be cast, the worthless servant, out into the outer darkness. And, the place, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now Paul had been given much, and been entrusted with much, And he had worked faithfully, but he had faced trials and tribulations along the way that prevented him from accomplishing all he wanted to accomplish. And yet here these people have come time and again and helped him so that he could focus on the work that God had called him to. You know, he had these problems with his ministry before he was arrested. We read in Acts chapter 18, after he left Athens and went to Corinth, He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, 
for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Then Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook his outer garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. But note, right? he was in tough straits. He had to work to try and earn enough money to feed himself and those who were helping him and to allow for his ministry. And that's where the term tent-making ministries comes from because he needed money to finance the ministry, so he worked. But once... Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. He was able to set aside the secular work and focus full-time on his ministry. And that was quite a blessing to him. Now, that was probably because the Philippians had shared with him. We read in verses 15, or we read in verse 15 and 16 here of our chapter that you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me for my needs once and again. So Macedonia would be the northern part of Greece. And when he was doing his tent making ministry, that would be down in the southern end of Greece. And money arrived for him from probably the Philippian church. And he was able to then devote himself to what God had called him to do. I'm sure he felt rather guilty not being able to devote his full energy to the ministry work. And here these people have come and provided for him. Now he can focus on the ministry and he is very happy. He says it was kind or it was excellent. It was a good thing for you to share in my trouble. In verse 14. And now they were reviving their earlier concern. They had provided for him over and over again during his ministry. Now that he's in prison, he's rejoicing. Uh, Verse 10 of chapter 4 of Philippians. I rejoice in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Meaning he was imprisoned in, in, in Israel, and now he's been moved to Rome where they can reach him. And they saw his need and they saw his desire and they helped him out in that. And he rejoiced in it. We learn a little more about this attitude he had towards them because of this sharing back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. He said, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he has this this great passion for them because they have been so helpful and passionate for his ministry and his work, both when he was with them and as he is away. And even now as he is in prison. And he considers this to be a great kindness to them a great blessing from them, and a, a, a very good thing. The word kindness there is, or the word it was kind is really, it was it was excellent thing for you to do in, in Christ. And 
we're told by Christ, remember, what you do for others, do first for them. And what they were doing is that they wanted Paul to minister to them, and they would minister to him when he had a need. It's showing that heart. You know, it's hard to understand this sometimes, but if you've read about missionaries of the past, you know, today, when I first went to Cambodia, the internet was so bad that I wasn't able to download all of my email. And I didn't have web access, so I had no, no means of communication. Because the, lo- the more emails I got, the longer it would take. It would start over every time and it would fail before I could finish because the internet was horrible. Today, it's like you can have a Skype call with America every day if you need to. It's not a big deal. But think back to 100 years ago when European missions were really first starting. Um, 200 years ago, almost. They would go someplace like Africa or Asia or India. They would get on a boat. They would sail for months. They would arrive there. They would work. Eventually, money would run tight. Support would run tight. Members of the team would get sick, have to go home, or they would die. And when you're there, alone, desperate, trying to find a way to earn enough money to feed yourself and continue teaching and ministering, another ship comes, and on it is somebody who's brought funds for the ministry. And you're revived. I've read that story of Africa. I've read it about India. You know, many times over as you read about missions, you hear that kind of a tale and what a joy that is to their heart. My ministry isn't going to die. It's going to live on. The work God has called me to and given me to. And so he had great joy in that and he was very thankful for them. But notice, he says, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 17 Their support was awesome. It was wonderful. It was going to save his ministry, allow him to continue the work God had called him to. But it wasn't the gift that he was most focused on. And it wasn't the giver either. I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, love the giver, not the gift. But if you do that, what's going to happen? Well, I love you for what you've done for me. Not really the best attitude to be taking. We all know how that works out in our lives. A lot of people love you for what you do for them, how you make them feel. But feelings come and feelings go and attitudes change and everybody has bad days and one day you're a jerk and they don't love you for that. And if that's the basis of their love, what is it? Nothing. And so we have to be careful not, not to focus our love on the person But some people also will focus on the gifts. You know, oh, wow, my ministry continues because you gave me this gift. Thank you for the gift. Uh, I remember hearing a story from a missionary said he would get regular care packages from the church. And they sent things like used razor blades. I'm like, what? You got used razor blades? Uh, Some people were, you know, oh, I need to give something, you know, I'll put this package together. I feel good. I've done my duty. And that was it. Others really thought about it. I remember when I was over there, I got my first care package and it had Oreos in it. Now, I like Oreos. But even my first year there, I could find Oreos in the market. (laughs) And I remember being like, well, 
then, of course, I was on a mission trip with a young person, a, a youth trip for two weeks. And, you know, in the middle of the second week, we're finally in a place that has shops. And he's looking, they uh, have M&Ms. And he runs over and he buys M&Ms and they're like his beloved treasure. Because for him, you know, the foreign food, foreign life, foreign language. It was the first time he'd ever been out of his mother's house. Um, you know, it was a huge deal. And it really made me think, you know, that was, yeah, maybe the Oreos weren't necessary because I had them there, but it wasn't that. It was really the heart. They were sending something to try and lift the spirits of the missionaries, to try and help them. Not money, because money is sent, and you know they buy the local things they need, but the things that would encourage their souls in their lives. It was how they were really showing love. It was how they were being partakers of the ministry, by sending somebody something that will remind them of home and help them to be of good courage and continue the work. There's a bigger danger, though, when we focus on the gift, and we all know what that is, right? You remember that televangelist? God is going to strike me dead unless I raise a million dollars. God has told me this. His only interest was the gift, not the giver. And the the televangelists in particular become multimillionaires, and we see this in cults, too, where... You know, the people live in poverty and the cult leader has a fleet of Mercedes Benzes or a fleet of Rolls Royces, if he's rich enough. They're interested only in the gift. We shouldn't be interested in the gift. Paul warns us in Ephesians 5.5 that the covetous person is an idolater and has no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't want to be... We don't want people thinking about the gift as, I've got something, now I'm okay, now I'm good. But as they're sharing in the ministry, and that's what he's focusing on here, not the gift so much, which was a great blessing and allowed him to do his ministry, but the gift as a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus talks about fruits in Matthew 7, He says, 15 through 20, he says, Beware of false prophets and those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs gathered from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you recognize them by their fruits. He's saying, these are your fruits. And he's looking at them and being excited about them and being happy about them. Not because he's in need, because as he just told us in the earlier section here, that I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I'm content in all things. Yes, he was very excited and happy for the ministry to continue thanks to their gift. But he's more excited at what the gift indicates. It's not used razor blades because somebody's going through the motions to feel good about themselves. It's what's needful for the ministry to continue. And that shows a heart for the ministry, a heart for God. It's the good fruit. 
that shows really their salvation. He talks about that back in chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so his prayer for them was that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And here he says, I'm looking at this not because I'm in need, not because I have wants, not because I desire your gifts, but because this is a fruit that shows your righteousness, your life with God, your attitude towards God. Really, it shows forth that salvation that they have claimed to have. Their fruit showed their sanctification. And that's why he says they've done, they've done rightly, excellently, well in, in doing this deed, not because it makes him feel good or gives him you know, food for his belly, but because it shows forth their righteousness and their holiness. And he calls it a fragrant offering. Now that's probably an allusion back to the Old Testament where a burnt offering was raised and God said it is an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Um, we see that in Leviticus a lot, particularly chapter 1, where they would take one of their animals, a cow or a sheep or a goat, not a goat usually, but a cow or a sheep, and they would offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord as a way of showing their love for God. And if you think about it, you know, cows are not cheap. A family that had more than one or two cows in Cambodia was considered rich. And they would raise them and then sell them, and that was a big source of income for them. Can you imagine taking your big source of income and burning it whole? Yeah, it was a sacrifice in the truest sense of the word for them. But it was a sacrifice that was pleasing to God, showing their love and devotion to him. And that's what Paul is calling the gifts of the Philippians. You know, they pulled together, they got the funds he needed, they sent manpower to him, including their pastor, to help him to make sure that the ministry, the life could continue, that Paul was able to, to survive. And it was considered a great blessing to him. In the book of Malachi, we read, in, lots, in fact, in most of the prophets, but we read about Israel and their, their mistreatment of the sacrifices that God had asked for in the Old Testament, the ceremonial sacrifices. And the first chapter of Malachi, verses 6 through 10, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise your name, my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my off altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of the Lord God, that he may be gracious to us with such gift from your hand. Will he show any favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? 
Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now, they were trying to go through the motions, get by, not be disturbed by God, not be weakened by him, not be impoverished by him, not have their pleasant life interfered with. And he did not take it very well. But this offering of the Philippians was one that was pleasing to God. And really, this is the offering that we are all to make. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we do that? Well, in verse 2, do not be, by not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, we are all to live that life of sacrifice to the Lord, not of necessarily of cows or not of money, but of our life, that we live it pleasing to him. Paul talked about this earlier when he talked about you know, living a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of our claim of salvation. How are we different than the world? You know, we should live a life that would be worthy to it, offering ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Now, as these people have physically given money, given funds, given support, given body, warm bodies to help, you know, they've provided for his needs physically. He tells them in verse 19 that God will also supply their needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Paul is a prisoner. His ministry is in jeopardy. He has no funds. He can't earn by tent making any more money. But the Philippians also are hard-pressed. They're facing persecutions and troubles. They have their own problems. But they've chosen to stand side by side with Paul as the pastor, as the, as the apostle and the minister, and to support his life and his ministry by sacrificing what was needed to be sacrificed. And what Paul is promising here is a long-standing Old Testament promise. We see it in Malachi again in chapter 3. And this is really one, again, talking more about the financial side, but about all of our sacrifices we can consider this. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 15. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how will we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And this is the verse I want you to think about. Bring to me the full tithe into the storehouse so that may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you blessings until there is no more need 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine of the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they could put God to the test and escape. You know, this idea is not left just for the, the financial part of following God, but all of it. They were saying it's vain to serve the Lord. And we serve the Lord not just with funds, but with our souls, with our hearts, with our lives, living that life worthy of the gospel, spreading the gospel, calling people, inviting them to church, calling them to repent of their sins, calling them to Christ. Now, God is absolutely sovereign. And he is saying here that he can provide for his people's needs. Now, the Philippians were facing persecution for following Christ. They could have said, well, we'll follow quietly for a while and hope this blows until this blows over. But instead, they were sending money and funds to Rome, the, one of the big sources, one of the two big sources of persecution at the time, the Jews and the Roman government, because they weren't afraid of Rome. They were afraid of the Lord, not meaning afraid as terror, but Fear as in that loving honor and respect of wanting to do what is right before him and not offend him, even though it offends the world. Now, he's called us all, not just Paul, to serve him in some manner. We are a kingdom of priests. Now, we are not, the priest is up here and you're down here and you're not allowed to touch the Bible, but we're all together with the Lord. We all have access to the throne of grace. We all have talents that we've been given. Using them for the Lord, whatever they may be, you know, from inviting somebody to church to supporting the ministries of the work, all of these are part of our, our sacrifice to the Lord, our life worthy of the gospel. And things that Paul has greatly rejoiced in seeing them do because they are showing really our heart for God and our life with God. And that's ultimately the great encouragement of the book of Philippians is they're being persecuted, their leader is in prison, and yet they persevere in the ministry and that's what God wants them to do. And that's what Paul calls them to do. Produce that fruit. Live that life. Glorify God in all things. You know, when we focus on God and his kingdom and his glory and his pleasure, we can always be confident of his provisions. We looked at that a little bit when we were looking at the do not be anxious passage just previously. But remember, Jesus also talked about that anxiety. In Matthew 6, verse 25 to 33, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than them? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, gra- clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Wherefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these will be added unto you. I think that's one of the main themes in the entire book of Philippians that Paul has been trying to teach us. Seek God first, live a life worthy of him, draw near to him. And in his abundant treasure in Christ, we will reap both spiritual rewards and rewards of our needs being met so that we don't need to be anxious. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful encouragements throughout the book of Philippians to turn our hearts to you, to focus on you, to make you, Lord, the center of our life, to live a life worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of you, that brings you you and your kingdom glory. And pray, Lord, that as we move on from this book that You would settle our hearts on those things that we might remember each day that we are your children in your house and that we are coming to live with you forever. Give us, Lord, the strength and the courage and the wisdom and the grace to live that way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.